Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'll be speaking with James Webster about his new book, The Marketplace of Attention, How Audiences Take Shape in a Digital Age. James Webster is professor in the School of Communication at Northwestern University. James Webster, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. Uh, Pleased to join you. So there's been a lot of ink, both literal and metaphorical, used to warn about the damage it's done when media consumption is driven chiefly by political beliefs. People could think, you know, Fox Nation, MSNBC Nation, Blue State, Red State. What does your research say about this? Is there a fact a Red State, Blue State divided media use in this country? Yeah, I think when uh, people talk about the red-blue divide, it often conjures up images of uh, Republicans and Democrats being barricaded in enclaves of like-minded speech, that they affirmatively seek out the things that they agree with and they actively avoid the things that they disagree with. And when you actually look at the data, there's very little evidence that that's happening. Uh, It is the case that partisans tend to seek out uh, viewpoints that they agree with, but they get exposed to plenty of things that they don't agree with, which I think in the grand scheme of things is probably a good thing. So, for example, when you look at Nielsen data and say, what are the viewers of Fox News also watching? It turns out that they uh, watch MSNBC, and they're about twice as likely to watch MSNBC as the adult population in general. And conversely, the people who watch MSNBC uh, are about twice as likely to watch Fox News as the adult population in general. Uh, So there's very little evidence, as I said, that people are barricading themselves in like-minded enclaves. It makes a great headline, though. People always want to, you know, that's what people want to hear, is that, you know, the country's being divided, even though apparently your research doesn't back this up. Well, I I mean, I think we have to be a little bit circumspect about this because what I'm describing are are patterns of exposure to um, news and information for the most part. Uh, And what that doesn't tell you is what conservatives make of liberal commentary or what liberals make of conservative commentary. They're probably exposed to it uh, to some degree, but they might simply not believe it which means that there's still the prospect of a kind of a a political polarization. I think the other thing that gets sort of um, forgotten about uh, in much of the research on the red-blue divide is that people are exposed to political ideas in things other than news and information. So most of the research concentrates on exposure to news and information. But a program, a sitcom like Modern Family, is full of political ideas. And um, while it's not one of the favorites of Fox News viewers, they do watch it. So I think most of us get exposed to political ideas that we may agree with or may disagree with uh, to the extent that we watch entertainment. And most people spend much more time watching entertainment than they do attending to the news. So the full title of the book is The Marketplace of Attention, How Audiences Take Shape in a Digital Age. Early on in the book, you talk about the the whole idea of an audience kind of I mean, for most people, we think, okay, audience could be people collected together to watch something. But you point out that there are, that that is maybe not, there are different ways to think about audiences and then audiences versus publics. And since the word marketplace is right in the beginning of the the title, should we think about audiences more from a commercial aspect and publics less than a commercial aspect? Where should we draw the line as we go forward thinking about these issues? Uh, Well, 
I I chose the the title marketplace of attention really as a a play on uh, the phrase marketplace of of ideas, uh, and uh, ultimately that's where the book is headed. Uh, I also throughout the book, and I note this early on, uh, say that I'm going to use the term audience which does indeed have some commercial connotations, the term audience and the term public attention more or less interchangeably. Uh, So I don't draw a sharp distinction between the idea of an audience and the idea of a public. I mean, after all, in this current media environment, you have um, politicians and other public speakers who use social media to tweet out messages to their followers, and you have people who use social media to get recommendations about what sort of television programs or websites they should visit. So it's all about the mechanisms that tend to generate uh, attention, what creates popularity or what contributes to a kind of ongoing audience loyalty. Uh, But to draw the distinction for me between an audience and a public is um, not a particularly useful distinction. Uh, let's talk about measurement. Uh, when I think about the last 20 years, really, and you talk about this a lot in the book, that, that there are, we could take a look at the internet as not only leading to a huge expansion in the amount of media produced, but also a whole lot more data to look at how audiences go. But if we think about how we measure audiences, there may be different ways to do it, but are we any better at measuring audiences than we were 20 years ago? Or is it just, okay, now we just have a lot more information to go through, but we may not necessarily be gleaning any more sophisticated analysis about what's going on with audiences? Um, well, there are a number of questions floating around there. I, I think we are better at measuring audiences uh, now than we were, you know, in the early 20th century. Um, in part, we're better at it because we just have to be. There's so much more competition. There's so many more choices that audiences do indeed become fragmented. And that presents a problem for the sort of traditional ways in which we have measured audiences. So the basic recipe has, since the beginning of the 20th century, been draw a representative sample of the population, measure them with questionnaires or diaries or um, later with meters and people meters, and then make inferences. Um, The big sea change in measurement uh, has been now taking advantage of servers to collect information on what people are doing. So in a digital environment, almost everything that you encounter, whether it's television programs on your cable system or you know, the websites that you visit or the music that you download from iTunes, is all delivered uh, via a server. And that server can keep a record of everything that uh, it's doing and in turn everything that you're doing, at least those things that are visible to the server. Uh, so these server-driven measurement options create enormous amounts of data uh, that are are oftentimes now referred to as, quote, big data. Uh, And they do open up new opportunities for analysis. There's certainly the opportunity for seeing behaviors with a lot more granularity than we've been able to see them before. But that doesn't mean that these new approaches, the server-centric approaches, are are problem-free. In fact, there are all kinds of limitations that I think in the popular discourse, people tend to forget about. So when I look at 
commentaries about big data, I often get the sense that there's a kind of irrational exuberance uh, that you encounter. Uh, but when you get into the trenches and really understand what the data are and how you might use them, it's a lot messier than uh, many people would suppose. So I guess taking on that, um, Amazon and Netflix are just two websites, I think, recently that have got into media production, making shows. They obviously have a lot of data about the people that have used their services. So should we think that maybe they're getting into production because they believe they know more about the audiences than, say, movie studios or television studios? Um, yeah, I think that's probably a fair assumption. I mean, they're they're in the business to make money. And I think producing things and distributing them is a, a logical extension of uh, their current business models. But uh, yes, indeed, they've got lots of data, and that may give them an advantage in the production process. So traditional movie studios or television studios have for a very long time used audience research to inform the production process. Uh, they might keep track of audience ratings or box office attendance, or they might commission surveys or focus groups to guide their decisions about what to develop or not. But it's it's been a, a modest component of production. Um, there are oftentimes other things like artistic judgments or trying to maintain good relations with A-list talent or any one of a number of things that um, you might think of as sort of the politics of cultural production that affect the things that are ultimately created. Now, the difference with uh, Netflix or Amazon is that they have millions of users, and they can see for each one of their users the things that they, they look at, the things that they download, the things that they purchase, to some extent the comments that they make about things. Uh, and the question is, can you harvest that wealth of data to make better decisions about what television shows or movies to create, what should go in them, what are the, the, the kind of elements of a genre that, that are going to get traction. And I think uh, while it's an intriguing prospect, it remains to be seen, in my judgment, whether any of this is really going to work. So one question would be, is the use of this sort of data-driven production going to result in better programs, and I mean critically better programs. An awful lot of creators are suspicious of the use of these data, and they think it's just going to result in a rush to the middle of the road, you know, producing more of the same, uh, but not really any creative breakthroughs. Uh, and I think in the final analysis, it remains to be seen whether when you start doing this, you produce a better track record of creating hits things that people actually elect to watch. Uh, if that's the case, even if critics don't think it's any better qualitatively, uh, then we're likely to see more of it. But um, the jury's still out on that one. You know, we started this discussion talking about the whole red state, blue state divide and whether that actually does affect how an audience forms and how people decide to consume media. Uh, you point out in the book that probably a greater barrier that maybe not a lot of people think about, particularly here in the States, is language. And when I read that, I thought, you know, there was a while ago I tried to learn Spanish. And one of the things I tried to do to help me with this was I would pick up uh, the Spanish version of People magazine, not, not, in, not a magazine I generally read in, in, in my normal course of, a, of my daily work. Uh, 
But the thing that caught me about the Spanish language version of People magazine is it's like it's almost looking at a completely different universe. There are all these actors, all these actresses, all these people who Spanish language People magazine thinks are really worthy of talking about who I had never heard of before. So could you talk about that, I guess, as an example of how language is actually a, a deeper barrier to how audiences form than, say, as we talked about earlier, political beliefs? Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're right in your observations that things like politics uh, attract a lot more attention in terms of the research that we, uh, we do and, and even popular uh, commentaries about the media environment. Uh, and it's not just limited to politics. Um, you know, there are other somewhat less confrontational genres of, of popular culture that you know, people either like or they dislike, and um, those are fairly salient. The issue with language is that it's so mundane in a sense that it really never enters our consciousness on a day-to-day basis. I mean, sure, we all know that there are people who speak Spanish or Chinese or French or German, uh, but on a day-to-day basis, you know, when you go to the World Wide Web, you're looking, for the most part, at things that are in your own language, and you don't give a thought to the world of content that's out there uh, in other languages addressed to other audiences. Now, it'd be one thing if across all of these languages, um, the content was essentially the same, and there's, there's actually a uh, a hypothesis about uh, sort of a consensus hypothesis that it's all the same. But actually, there's research when you look at it, the material, as you suggested, that you encounter in different languages is really quite different. And even when they address the same subject, they oftentimes frame it in quite different ways. So across the globe, um, the the research that we've done looking at the forces that cluster audiences around websites um, using Comscore data, actually, uh, indicates that a very powerful driver of that is language and secondarily uh, geography. They sort of work in tandem, and that explains an awful lot of the way audiences flow around the World Wide Web. But um, I think there's, there's a kind of an unspoken assumption in a lot of communications research done in the U.S. that whatever we find in the U.S. is going to generalize to the rest of the world. And, you know, we're getting better about not falling into that trap because when we do look at cross-cultural comparisons and differences across languages, um, there are some pretty interesting and uh, important differences. And to the extent that we've got this blind spot on language, uh, we're not sufficiently attentive to those differences. So finally, when we talk about audiences taking shape, you know, would you point there are really kind of two schools of thought: is that one, the audience, individuals, work as a collective or aggregate, and it's the individual choices they're saying, okay, I'm going to watch this, I'm not going to watch that. Flip side is that the media producers, one could think, networks, radio stations, movie studios, YouTube, uh, you know, YouTube corporate people producing for YouTube. Uh, know their audiences well enough that they can design their content. So although maybe the audience thinks it's making a free choice, free will, that in fact there's some degree of destiny in how the media landscape is shaped that certain decisions are probably going to be made. Where do you come down on this? Where do you think audiences form? 
Uh, well, this taps into a much larger debate in the social sciences between uh, what are referred to as agency and structure, uh, which does a better job at explaining social behavior. Um, and from my perspective, um, it's a kind of a trick question because what I argue for in uh, the marketplace of attention is that the forces that create the media environment really result from a collaborative effort. Uh, it requires both um, users deciding what they want to do, exercising their agency, uh, but in order to do that, they have to use structures. And they're the media environment is full of ready-made structures. It could be anything from TV channels and networks to websites to search engines to social media platforms. So you use these structures, these resources that are available, and in doing that, audiences reproduce and alter those structures. So it's, um, it's sort of a jointly uh, constructed environment. Now, to be a little bit more responsive to your question. I think right now those forces of structure and users or agents are more or less in balance, uh, which is a, a good thing. I mean, I think that's probably the way it should be. Um, I think not everyone agrees with that. Uh, most of the or many of the pessimistic accounts about what the future holds um, think that structures, particularly data-driven structures that people can't see, are, are going to colonize users and uh, corral them into what uh, Eli Pariser uh, calls filter bubbles, for example, uh, where you're being managed in ways that you can't really see, don't understand, and that these will have long-term consequences. So in that kind of an argument, uh, structures trump uh, user predispositions uh, and agency is sort of a um, a sham. Uh, I don't think we're there yet. For that really to happen, you'd have to see that people are operating with enclosed structures, and it's very hard to corral people into one and only one system where they can be effectively managed. So we operate across many platforms. Um, we have a bunch of competitors who are doing uh, everything they can think of to attract our attention. Uh, so I'm cautiously optimistic about our ability to maintain that balance going forward, which ultimately I think is, is probably healthy for the society and, as I said before, the marketplace of ideas. James Webster, the author of The Marketplace of Attention and How Audiences Take Shape in a Digital Age. Thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thank you very much. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2014, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.